The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and His Word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through His Word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know He's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory Join of us God. on this journey as our pastor, Justin Hibbard, leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. How about a, a city that is the capital city? Annapolis, right? Well, Thyatira is like the Glen Burnie of Asia Minor. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I can say that with authority now that I live in Glen Burnie. <laughs> in fact, there was a contemporary writer of the time who said, who was listening, and all the insignificant cities of Asia Minor like Thyatira. So it had a prominence of being the most significant of insignificance, right? And, and what Thyatira was known for, it was known for being a, a trade guild city. So whereas the other ones had a lot of monuments, it had a lot of uh, pagan worship, it had a lot of uh, ties to Rome, Thyatira was just a, a trade guild. And if, if you drive down Ritchie Highway, you get that impression, right? It's, it's car repair shop after car dealership, followed by strip mall, followed by buffet, followed by, you know, all these different little trade guilds on the way through Glen Burnie. So that's, uh, that's kind of the context here. Thyatira really isn't a significant city, but it's significant enough to get into the seven churches here in Revelation. John makes a point of writing to this church, and Jesus speaks directly to them. So we're going to turn our attention to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. <clears throat> to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols, I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, in looking at these letters, there's a clear pattern that is followed, and Jesus begins that pattern by introducing himself to the church. In this case, he says, these are the ones of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished brass. A description that they would probably understand being, trade, being in the trade industry. They probably worked with things like fire and brass. But these two things are significant. And I want us to really focus on the eyes of fire because we will see that throughout this letter and how that plays into importance. But the other thing about this is that this description, again, follows exactly what John sees in Revelation chapter 1. In verse 12, we read, And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among these lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, which we talked about last week with the city of Pergamum. His face was like the sun, shining in its brilliance. So eyes like fire, what does that bring to mind? For me, that brings to mind that this guy can see, this God can see everything that we do. He can see into our hearts. He, can, he has that ability to, to see beyond the surface level and really get to the heart of the issue. And that's a good thing. Because how does, he, how does he begin every letter? When it begins with the commendation, he says, the first two words are always, I know. I know. God knows his church. God knows his people. God knows what they're up to. And this is great news. Because if you're the city of Ephesus and you're fighting against uh, the people trying to influence the church, God knows it. If you're the city of, of Smyrna, a city where you're, where you're left underground because of your faith, God says, I know your poverty, I know that you're struggling, but I know that you are rich. I see that you are very rich. For the church at, uh, for the church at Pergamum, a church that struggled with, uh, also with persecution, he says, I know what you're doing. Have you ever been in a situation where you do something, maybe it's a task at home, maybe you've made a, a, a delicious dinner, maybe you've sewed something awesome, you know, maybe you've folded like eight weeks of laundry, or maybe you, something at work where you have done a project and you've put every little nitpicky detail. Julie, you wouldn't know anything about this, would you? <laughs> and really, we can't appreciate uh, what you've done because we don't know what it takes to do the things that you've done, but you know it. You're like, oh, I wish someone could see the, the little detail that I put in here, and I wish they would catch on to that. My wife is like, look at, your, look at the closet. Look at, I've lined up your clothes by color. You know what I mean? <laughs> and and um, we, we can't appreciate that, but God can. And so we can take heart in what Jesus says in the, uh, in the, in the parable on the Mount, or on the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, he says, hey, give in secret, and your, and your Father who sees everything in secret will reward you in open. And so the church at Thyatira had some great things going. He says, look, I know your love, and I know your deeds. I know your service. I know your perseverance. You know, the other thing I think is very healthy about this is that sometimes we can be people who are uh, glasses half empty, right? We look at churches and we say, well, that church has a lot of issues. And really, you know, some churches have some doctrinal issues. Some churches have issues where they've let worldly influence happen. A lot of, you know, no church is perfect. I'm sure people come in here and say, well, this is what I didn't like about that church, and that's what I don't like about that church. But know what Jesus does? He looks at these churches, and yes, he sees the bad things, but he also sees the good things that we're doing. He also sees the good in the churches, and I I think that's really helpful. That's really a great perspective. That's a very merciful perspective. He looks at us, and he says, look, hey, let me tell you about the good things you're doing. Okay, now let's talk about the things we need to repent of and that we need to get right with God. He doesn't count us out. He doesn't say, look, it's all over for you. You just don't have it right. He says, look, here are the good things you're doing. Here are the bad things you're doing. What a wonderful, healthy perspective that is. And the thing that Thyatira, that he commends them for, is he says, you're even doing more than before. I think this is, this is such a word for New Hope Chapel. Uh, you know, we're not a, a huge church. We're, we're kind of tucked into a neighborhood here in Arnold. 
And for some people, these mega churches, you think of these churches who baptize 30,000 people in a year or something like that, who would look at you and say, well, what are you doing, right? And what would we say? We would say things like, well, it's amazing to see how the Lord is working through the individual lives. And to us, we see it. And it's a big significance. It's huge in our life. To others, they may not understand it, but God sees it and God knows it. And so to us, I think the Lord would say these things. He would say, hey, you're doing even more than you did before. You're, you're encouraging. You're growing. This is awesome. You're doing great things. But you know, when, you know when it's not good that God has those eyes like fire? When we're doing the things we're not supposed to be doing, right? In the case of Thyatira, in the case of Ephesus, in the case of Pergamum, all three of these churches were not doing things or doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing evil things that they were letting their church fall prey to. In this church, he says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Well, isn't this interesting? Because last week, it was Balaam. Pergamum was told that there are people that are holding on to the the teaching of Balaam, who told Balak how to seduce Israel into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Here, this church is holding on to Jezebel, who is teaching them the very same things. And we talked about the Roman influence, that that idolatry and sexual immorality were at the heart of the Roman Empire and the heart of pagan worship. Isn't it interesting that for two letters in a row, for two churches in a row, God makes reference to Old Testament characters and Old Testament situations? And remember, it's not like they have the Bible like we have today. Old Testament reading, the scripture was generally limited to the synagogues. And so perhaps it was the Jewish people, the Jewish converts to Christianity that had to teach the the Romans, the people who grew up in a pagan society and just came to faith in Jesus, what it means. What is Balaam? Who is Balaam? Who is Jezebel? What are these what are these things that? No, one thing that that I think about when I think of these analogies that are used is I don't think Jesus wastes words. I think if uh, Jesus had a Twitter account, he would use all 140 characters perfectly, right? <laughs> Every tweet would be exact. When you read his parables, you, want, you know, I get this impression. I'm like, wow, Jesus really got to the heart of the issue using analogies in a way that I don't think I could ever do. He, he, so I don't think it was by coincidence or accident that he used Balaam to talk about Pergamum, but Jezebel to talk about Thyatira. So why does he talk about Thyatira in regards to Jezebel? Well, to answer that question, I think we need to look at who Jezebel was. Jezebel was most noted as the wife of King Ahab, one of, king, one of Israel's kings. Ahab is introduced to us in 1 Kings around chapter 16 as being one of the wicked, most wicked kings in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that says a lot because there were some wicked kings in Israel's history. And he says that Ahab did more evil than all of the kings before him. Well, Ahab is known for, uh, in particular, his contribution to Israel's society was killing God's prophets. That's He hunted them down. And the one that he really wanted to get was Elijah. And he put quite a bounty on Elijah's head, and Elijah ran for his life. Well, one of the incidents that occurs in Elijah's ministry is that, he, is that he brings Balaam, or he brings um, Ahab and his prophets of Baal because Ahab was really into Baal worship, and they have a little contest. 
to see whose God would put fire on the altar. Of course, the 450 prophets of Baal yell and scream, try to get Baal to listen to them, and they don't. And Elijah, in a moment of holy trash talking, says, well, scream a little louder. Maybe your God isn't listening. Maybe he's, maybe he's on vacation. And finally, the, the prophets of Baal give up. But Elijah calls on the name of the Lord, even after pouring water on the altar, and the Lord consumes the altar. Then Elijah does something pretty rash. He kills all 450 of those prophets of Baal. Ahab goes home to his wife Jezebel and kind of tells him what, what's happened. Sort of in a, wow, that was kind of impressive type of thing. Jezebel wants nothing to do with it. She sends a letter to Elijah and says, the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I haven't done to you what you've done to the prophets of Baal. Talk about a wicked woman. You get the impression very quickly that Jezebel's really the one that wears the pants in the kingdom, right? It's not, uh, it's not Ahab. It's Jezebel. She's the wicked one behind Ahab. We'll see that. Sort of reminds me of those bumper stickers that came out after Bill Clinton became president. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? It said, I didn't vote for him or her and had a picture of Hillary there as well. It just reminded me of that for some reason. You know, the other instance that I point to about talking about how wicked Jezebel was and why she was kind of the influence on Ahab was Naboth's vineyard. The story of Naboth's vineyard is that Naboth was a guy who had a vineyard in Jezreel right near the palace. And Ahab looked at this vineyard. He says, I really like that vineyard. I think I want that. And so he goes to Naboth and he says, hey, would you give me your vineyard? And if you're not going to give it to me, I'll at least pay a fair price for it. Naboth knows better. He says, first of all, this was a gift from my ancestors. And second of all, God would not have me give anything to you. That's what he says. So Ahab, like a three-year-old who, who just had it in our family, the iPod taken away from him, he goes to his bed, <laughs> he goes to his bed and, and, he, starts, and he starts sulking. And, and he's moaning. And Jezebel comes in. And she sees him whining. Oh, I don't get my vineyard from Naboth. And she says, what's wrong? And, he's, and he explains to her what happened. And she says, Aren't you the king? Aren't you a man? And she really lectures him. So then what she does is she forges letters on behalf of Ahab, saying this is Ahab's decree. And what it was was she wanted them to throw a party for Naboth. Only what would happen is at the party, a couple people would sporadically, coincidentally come in and accuse Naboth of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God and blasphemy against the king. And that's what happened. And Naboth was put to death because of that. Ahab got his vineyard. That's just to demonstrate the type of wicked person that Jezebel was. Elijah prophesies to Ahab uh, near the end of his life, and he says this. He says, Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, God says, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab, every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds will feed on those who die in the country. There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. 
well, what a, what a terrible thing to say. And that's exactly what happens. Ahab is killed in battle shortly after. It's not until 2 Kings 9 that we read of Jezebel's demise. And basically, Jehu is anointed king by Elisha, the prophet, who was a, a, um, a disciple of Elijah. And Elisha says, this is what the Lord wants you to do. He wants you to strike down all of Ahab's descendants, especially Jezebel. And that's what Jehu does. He finds Jezebel, a couple of eunuchs find her in the, top of a, uh, in the upper room of a house. And they say, what do you want us to do with, them, with her? He says, throw her out the window. So they throw out the window, and she lands on the street, and blood spatters on the wall. Horses trample over her. He goes in to have dinner and have a drink of wine. And he says, oh, wait, wait, about that woman Jezebel. Why don't you go get her? We should bury her. She was the daughter of a king. When they go out to get her, the only thing that's left is her skull. You know, this is the type of thing that God, he really hated Jezebel. He really wanted Jezebel justice to come to Jezebel. So when we look at Jezebel, what is, what is this? What, why, is, why is Thyatira compared to Jezebel? Why, you know, I can't help but think that there's significance in the fact that this is a woman, whereas Balaam was a man in the situation of Pergamum. And perhaps it is, we don't know for sure, but perhaps it is that there are, there are people in the church married to women who were involved in sexual immorality and idolatry that is still tied with the Roman, uh, the Roman culture, the Ro- Roman pagan way of life. Perhaps it is that um, it is one person that is married to someone in the church. Perhaps it is that there's this woman who's calling herself a prophetess, but yet this is the teaching she has. You know, what a, again, we're, we're struck by the need to have sound doctrine in the church, the need to push away the pagan, the, the cultural way of life and embrace the things of God. And really what I, I want to speak about today is the importance of having men in leadership, in spiritual leadership. And this is not to say that this is, how, this is how women lead in spiritual leadership. There are some godly women. And I love that we, ha- we are a church that encourages women to be involved in all sorts of ministry. I think that's awesome. And I don't think the Bible is disparaging about women in leadership. If anything, maybe, it, if anything, maybe it's a call for men to step up and be spiritual leaders in homes and in churches and to really take on that responsibility. I think of, um, I think of uh, you know, in, my, in, in our marriage, with, one of the things that strikes me is that there's a lot of things that I do, like paying the bills, where I don't mind my, my wife uh, not doing them. You know, and there's some things that she is happy to do herself and t- kind of take the initiative. But there's other things where she actually wants me to take leadership, where she wants me to take the initiative. And it's so important, too, this speaks to the importance of finding a spouse, a godly spouse, and not just settling for someone that's going to influence you in the wrong way. Those of you who are, who are looking maybe in the future, maybe 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now of being married, find a godly woman. Find a godly husband. That is the most important thing in your life. I'm so thankful for a wife that encourages me, that is, is there to tell me when I'm not doing the right thing, that holds me accountable, that speaks truth and love, and that she is a, she is a voice from the Lord in, in so many aspects of my life. 
But a lot of people don't have that, like Ahab. I remember there was a man who, who I knew in, in various church leadership capacities. He was a leader in the, in, in the denomination. He was a leader in a pastor of many churches. And this guy was known for having a spirit of anger. And I remember in one case where it affected me personally, and I was talking to someone about it, he says, you know, I don't think that's him. I think that's his wife's influence over him. She is the one that's spurring that type of behavior. So be careful. Be careful. You know, but the other thing is that it is so important for men to take spiritual leadership in the home. I mean, what man would say, what man would, in a dangerous situation, would put his kids and his wife in harm's way so that he could be safe? What man would, would not provide for his wife and for his kids and so he could have food and he could have what he wanted? Well, in spiritual leadership, we have to remember that being a Christian is not signing up to be a pansy. It's signing up for spiritual warfare. Ephesians tells us we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against powers and principalities, things that are dark and evil and disgusting. Why would men sit back and put their children and their wives on the front line and not step up and be the spiritual leaders in the family? I just really, you know, that's some of my heart's desires, that us men, that we would step up and that we would be that the spiritual leadership. We would take that opportunity that God has given us and not pass that off, not say, I'm not willing to do that. I, I, I'm not comfortable in my man, manhood about that. But we would say, you know what? God has given me a unique position. He's given me a unique opportunity. And I really want to step up and be a man of God in my family and in my church. The warning that... God gives is severe. But notice the parallels that he gives. What does he say? He says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. Now that's important because in all the other churches, he says repent or else. In this case, he says the time of repentance is over. Remember, God's judgment, his, his way of talking to us, sometimes like a father talks to a child when a child has messed up, is meant to bring us to repentance. In this case, their time for repentance is over. And he says, she is unwilling to repent, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds. There's the idea of the one who sees. I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the prophecy that was prophesied over Ahab and Jezebel? It sounds very, very similar. So what does it mean that he will cast her on a sickbed? Well, I, I think, that, think of this very practically. What are they involved in? Well, they're involved in sexual immorality. And that's a dangerous thing to be involved in because there's a lot of health risks about that. AIDS, HIV, HPV, gonorrhea, all of those things that we see even today. If you want to play, you're going to have to pay the consequences. That was one of the things. The second thing is that, and not only that, but they they didn't have medicine like we had today. Chances are their children got sick, and we see that in Africa. The children inherit exactly what those types of sexual diseases that 
sexually transmitted diseases that parents have in many cases. But the other thing to keep in mind is that this is also spiritual sickness, that our children learn from the parents. They learn how to behave, and that the children will inherit, in many cases, the same lifestyle that the parents give to them. It is important that, to realize that our faith in Christ, we are a beacon of light. Men, we're not just, we're not just um, uh, this isn't just something, I'm just, I'm just not blowing smoke in your face. What I'm, what I'm telling you is that, is that our children need to learn. They need to learn because they're going to get married someday. And I want my daughter to know what a godly husband looks like. I want my son to know how to be a godly husband. So this is not just for me in my immediate situation. This is a legacy I desire to pass down to all generations that would come after me. And hopefully that is our desire. But you know, in Thyatira, we see two groups. We see a group that has fallen prey to this, and we see another group who has not. And he, he divides them. And he says, for those of you who have not gotten involved with this and learned some of Satan's deep, so-called deep secrets, I'm not going to impose another burden on you except for you to hold on until I come. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing things that are great. Keep holding on. He's able to decipher, distinguish between the good and the bad. Again, we see a God who sees what's going on. And then he gives us a promise. And like we've seen throughout Revelation, the promise is prophetic and it comes true and we see its fulfillment later on in Revelation, although ultimately we will experience its fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven. The promise is to the one who is victorious, I will give authority over the nations and that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. And then the other part of the prophecy is that I will give them the bright and morning star. Well, it's interesting that this is actually a quotation, not, a, not an original prophecy. This comes from Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm chapter 2, we read this. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. There's the exact language that's used in Revelation 2. It was first used in Psalm chapter 2. I love how God's word works and how over, you know, this is hundreds of years, thousands of years afterwards that David is writing this psalm, this psalm and then afterwards that John is writing this letter. And it's all because they're listening to the words of their master, the Lord. But we see this fulfillment in Revelation chapter 19. Take a look at this. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like blazing fire. So there we go. There's the image of the blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Last week we talked about having a name that no one knows but ourselves. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. We looked at that last week, the Word of God, the Logos of Theos. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth, what is this? A sharp sword. There's the double-edged sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe... And on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who carried, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. So what does it mean that we will rule the nations with an iron scepter? It means that we will participate with God. We will be in God's army. I, I can't help but think about the general who stands before jo- who Joshua, and Joshua's like, all right, wh- whose side are you on? Are you on our side or their side? And the, and the general's response was, wait a second, are you on my side or their side? Right? We get to be on God's side. The second part of the promise is that he will give us the bright and morning star. Well, what does that mean? Well, many people think, well, maybe it's the sun, maybe it's Venus. But it's in Revelation chapter 22 that we see the fulfillment of this. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever with him. So there it is. We will reign forever and ever with him. The idea that we will be in the authority of God. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. There's that idea again. He says, I will repay each person for what they have done. In Revelation 22, I will give to each person what they have done. So those who are doing the good things of Thyatira will be rewarded richly. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Those are the very words that he introduces himself to with in, in the church at Smyrna. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. There's the promise to Ephesus, the right to the tree of life. And may go through the gates into the city. Outside, now listen to this, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone else who loves and practices falsehood. Now, isn't this ironic? Because who was Jezebel? She was the wife of a king who was involved in Baal worship. She murdered people. She was involved in in all sorts of magic arts. She was involved in sexual immorality. She loved to practice falsehood, and she was eaten by dogs. In the same case, in, in Thyatira, it, we're, given, we're given two choices here. You can either follow God or you can follow the ways of Jezebel. That's, those are the options. And inside the city are those who follow the way of the Lord and are obedient to him. Outside the city are those who are not. Jesus ha- I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this, this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. Remember the brass feet? The brass feet, what would that signify? That signifies something that stands firm. It's not like that the statue that we see that was given in the dream to Nebuchadnezzar that has the feet of iron uh, mixed with clay. That's very unstable. Jesus' way, his kingdom, stands firm. He is the root and the offspring of David. He is at the foot and he is the head of the church. He, and he's, what does he say? He says, and I am the bright morning star. So what does it mean to, what does it mean that Jesus will give us the bright morning star? It means that he will give him, give us himself. He will be our God. We will be his people. We will have fellowship and unity with him in a way that we've never experienced before. 
You know, they, these wonderful descriptions, these promises of heaven. Remember, I, I remember growing up that the, the prayers of salvation were always about, oh, imagine living in streets of gold and eating of everlasting fruit and swimming in crystal waters and all of those things. Well, those are great things, but the, they, they pale in comparison to the real thing of heaven is that we get to be with Jesus face to face, that we get to live in communion with him. And that's what all these promises are about. They're telling us about a life with Jesus, saying, hold on to this life with Jesus. I know that there's suffering. I know that you're up against a lot of things. But you know what? Stand firm. Because one day, you'll get to experience him in all of his splendor and his glory. The idea of radiance is simple. We at New Hope Chapel want to be a relevant Relevant, church. But more important than being relevant to the world, we want to be relevant to Jesus. We believe God still speaks and his word is still relevant to us. His message to the seven churches in Revelation has a historical context, but their lessons are eternal. So we're engaging with God through his word and through prayer and saying, God, what is it that you want from our church? If we seek God's face, we know he's going to speak to us, and we will radiate with the glory of God. Radiate with the glory Join of us God. on this journey as our pastor, Justin Hibbard, leads us in building a church after God's own heart. God's own heart. God's own heart. New Hope Chapel is a ministry in Arnold, Maryland. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Special thanks to the least of these for the music for this podcast.